Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on June the 18th, 2013. For newcomers, as always, go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com and find out what the system is that you're born into, uh, where it's going, how it got together, who runs it all, and you'll find that big private corporations and foundations were set up a hundred odd years ago to bring in a global society using a lot of sciences on the general population to bring in an obedient society as the ended basically nationality or nationalism and brought them under, into trading blocks, which would then be joined together under eventually world government on behalf of the big corporate bosses. And also the, the, fact, the fact was too, they decided that, that uh, government itself would have to be privatized step by step by step until the big corporations themselves would own it. And we're pretty well on the way to that stage today. So find out how it happened, who was behind it, all the big money boys that got together and decided the fate of the world, uh, who give grants to academia to make sure that academia turns out the, the, the managerial class to which they need in every generation to organize and run us all, of course. So it's an old plan. It's well constructed, incredibly well organized. And it's been on the go for an awful long time. Plus, they also want to standardize every country across the world into something called democracy which is a wonderful dream for folks, but we've never had it, and they don't intend ever to give it to you, actually. But it's very important that you believe in it, because that way you vote, and you sit back and wait for the next bunch day to leave, and then you vote for somebody else. You don't rebel, in other words. Remember, too, that you bring me to you. I don't bring on advertisers as guests and so on. I don't sell lots and lots of stuff. I just have books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com where I go through the whole system for you and the art of chronology, which is a very old art indeed, because people learned a long, long time ago, thousands of years ago at least, how to run the minds of the masses through ancient religions and so on. Always on behalf, of course, of the ultra-elite themselves, there's always been a dominant minority, an ultra-elite. And, of course, today uh, it's, it's rather huge, actually. It's a large dominant minority across the whole planet with locks in common with each other. In fact, they let them intermarry with each other and have done for a long, long time. And they also pass on the money to each other because they're awfully, awfully rich. And they don't intend to give up the power. So to buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, remember from the U.S. to Canada, you can still use personal checks or international postal money orders. Uh, from the post office, you can send cash or use PayPal across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram and PayPal. And straight donations are really seriously welcome as we go through inflation and costs are going up as we all know. We're all getting it. Canada goes up higher than most folks because we always get gouged more. In fact, I think I read an article today where Canada was paying at least 18% more, often much more, for the same items sold in the U.S. and sold in Canada. And plus we have the taxes on top with the, the, the so-called general sales tax and harmonized taxes and so on. But people don't complain here, you see. So as I say, you can buy the books and discs and keep me ticking along. Now, most folk have a hard time today because you understand the whole system of controlling the population is to make them think they're free, always. 
and to make you think that things just happen out of blue. Uh, crisis, financial crisis, for instance, just happen spontaneously. Uh, wars happen spontaneously too, and, and things like that. Nothing is further from the truth. Wars take years and years to prepare for. Even the color revolutions take years to prepare for and agitate and agitate from within the countries where you send the agitators in too. And then, of course, they call it soft power at the Council of Foreign Relations and in the the military uh, Pentagon and so on. That's what they call soft power. And then it's followed up by bringing in radicals or insurgents from all over, mercenaries basically, who are paid by the, the Western governments to go in and take over countries because those countries have to be standardized, plundered too, and brought back to the Stone Age so that another dominant minority who live in the region can dominate them all. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix and it really is a matrix, isn't it? Because we're bombarded with masses of data every day and most of it's useless to us, of course. And most of it also is intended to program you along other ways to think about certain things. Not your points of view, but someone else's point of view, especially professionals and experts, you see. And it's amazing how the experts keep changing their mind. It depends what agenda's on the go at the particular time. And uh, uh, they're very flexible, in other words, with the experts' opinions because we're trained to believe in experts. And you can go way back to the 50s and 40s with Lord Bertrand Russell and others who worked with the global think tanks to bring in the system. And he said, we'll train the public to, to believe experts until basically a, a mother wouldn't know how to change the, the, the diaper on her child without expert advice. Now they have courses in it and stuff like that. When he talked about that, every, everyone knew how to how to change them. Even the boys knew because they were brought up in families helping out. But not nowadays. Everything's experts, you see. And with this technique, of course, we're, we're conned into any way that they wanted to con us at, at all. And again, that technique was, was, wasn't uh, original. It's been used before, and Russell knew it too, because he also studied Edward Bernays. He knew him too. And Edward Bernays, of course, was um, used by many U.S. presidents to help manage the minds of the, the general masses. He even got a war going for a private enterprise at one point and got the U.S. to fight it for him because I think it was the American Fruit uh, Company that was based on, in uh, Latin America. And they voted in another, uh, democratically voted in their own president, but he wanted the workers to get paid rather than just get slave labor. And it was upsetting the big, big uh, cartel that owned all the fruit and so on. It was imported to the U.S., a big client of, of Bernays. And so he, Bernays actually started up what appeared to be an official, uh, cinema, cinema uh, news uh, system, very much like Pathy News, and, uh, and saying that communists were now in there. And so they got the U.S. to invade the country, bump out all the opposition, install their dictators again, and the business went back to usual. He was paid a lot of money for it, too, of course, but he actually used the U.S. troops and the taxpayers paid for it all. And that's power, isn't it? He also, Bernays also gave you the consumer society. He also worked on the end of the consumer society and for globalism as well. He lived, lived an awful long age, of course, but psychopaths generally do because they don't worry about things. But getting back to Russell, too, he understood all this stuff, and he said, we'll train the general population to be egocentric and, um, and narcissistic. Uh, that breaks up the basically community-type systems where you work together. If you're a narcissist, everyone's out for themselves, and you can get nothing done. You're too weak 
and impotent to get anything done as a group, uh, that we're already here. Every stage, every planned stage of the last century into this stage of this century and, and beyond was all planned way back in the 40s and 50s by professional think tanks. But uh, our minds are bombarded as I see getting back to data, excess data. It's irrelevant. Most folk can't consume it, or most folk will definitely not retain it. But the, 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 a lot of it, too, is predictive programming, which makes it appear that certain things are going to be inevitable. That's the whole point of it, inevitability. You can't do anything. It's inevitable. That, that's stated over and over and over again. Even the so-called latest Snowden reports really are out there for that same reason. The average person say, oh, gee, what can you do? I guess it's inevitable. And you give a consent, a tacit consent in that case, because you, you stop complaining. And the government has a legality over you then, and they go ahead with more. Now, this article here kind of ties in with this, because it t- ties in with this system. Paul Craig Roberts wrote it, but it says... The 21st century, the 200-year-old propaganda that the American people control or government has been completely shattered. Both the Bush and Obama regimes have made it unmistakably clear that the American people don't even influence, much less control, the government. And that, that says it like it is, you see. Same in every country now. As far as Washington is concerned, the people are nothing but chaff in the wind. This is polls demonstrate that 65% of the U.S. population oppose U.S. intervention in Syria. Despite the clear indication of the people's will, the Obama regime is ramping up a propaganda case for more arming of Washington's mercenaries sent to overthrow the secular Syrian government and for a no-fly zone over Syria, which if Libya is an example, it means U.S. or NATO aircraft attacking the Syrian army on the ground, thus serving as an air force of Washington's imported mercenaries, euphemistically called the Syrian rebels. Washington declared some time ago that the red line that would bring Syria under Washington's military attack was the Assad government's use of chemical weapons of mass destruction. That that became a a mantra during the Bush era, remember. And and it was all lies. It was all exposed even during it, and and definitely a lot of stuff came out after it. Uh, And, of course, all these guys were on television all the time lying, Colin Powell, all the rest of them. It doesn't matter because John Pilger said it. When they've planned war, uh, facts don't matter. This is planned war. Facts don't matter. Since once the announcement was made, everyone was a brain, was a, immediately knew that Washington would fabricate false intelligence that Assad had used chemical weapons. And of course, that did come out, and they found out it was actual rebels that were using it. And so just as Washington presented to the United Nations the intentional lie via Secretary of State Colin Powell that Saddam Hussein in Iraq had dangerous weapons of mass destruction. One of them happened to be a weather balloon that the British government had sold them with a trailer on it. They tried to say it was a, it was a, it was a rocket was on it. And Colin Powell, uh, it's still up on YouTube yet, he goes on and on in a big major televised uh, talk showing you this very fuzzy thing. They can't get good satellite images, apparently, except to, when they want to look at you. But um, they showed you this fuzzy-looking thing in the desert, and he said this this was a, a carrier of weapons of mass destruction, and it was literally a weather balloon used by the weather systems in, in the country. That, and Britain eventually came out and said, well, well, actually, we sold them that, and that's just a weather balloon and the trailer that carries it. But that got the war going. That was good enough, you see. He says, remember national... Security advisor Condé Rice's image of a mushroom cloud over America's cities. Propagandistic lies were Washington's orders of the day. 
And the Stellaris is now Washington has fabricated the false intelligence and President Obama has announced it with a straight face that Syria's Assad has used sarin gas on several occasions and that between 100 and 150 of his own people, a euphemism for the US-supplied foreign mercenaries, have been killed by the weapon of mass destruction. Think about it for a minute. It's unfortunate as any death from war is. 100 to 150 deaths, mass destruction. According to the lowball estimates, the U.S.-sponsored foreign mercenary invasion of Syria has cost 93,000 lives, of which 150 deaths amounts to 0.0016 or 1,600th of 1%. And it says, and in other words, 98,850 of the deaths did not cross the red line, but 150 did, allegedly. It says, yes, I know Washington's position makes no sense, but when has it ever made any sense? Let's stretch our minds a, a bit further. It says, Assad knows about Washington's red line. It's been repeated over and over in order to create in the minds of the distracted American public there is a real valid reason for attacking Syria. Why would Assad use the prescribed weapons of mass destruction in order to kill a measly 150 mercenaries when his army is mopping up the U.S. mercenaries without the use of sarin gas and when Assad knows that the use of gas brings in the U.S. and the military against him? As the Russian government made clear Washington's accusations, it's not believable. No informed person could possibly believe it. No doubt many Americans wearing patriotism on the sleeve will fall for Washington's latest lie, but no one else in the world will. Even Washington's NATO puppets calling for attacking Syria know the justification for the attack is a lie. For the NATO puppets. Washington's money overwhelms integrity, for which the rewards are low. I mean, of course, to remember, I've read the articles on the air in the mainstream paper from Britain, where all the big oil giant companies went to Tony Blair before he went along with the war on Iraq, and they had decided there how much money they wanted to contribute and so on, payoffs, a whole bit. That was in the mainstream papers, folks, and how they would divvy up the oil fields. Since Russians certainly know that Washington is lying, the Russian Foreign Minister Larov said the Assad government, as the opposition is saying openly, is enjoying military success on the ground. The regime isn't driven to the wall. What sense there for the regime to use chemical arms, especially in such small amounts? And it goes on and on and on. And it talks about the the different uh, collusion of the United Nations and NATO and all the rest of it. Uh, in this, and as, as I say, facts don't matter, as, as Pilger says, when they've planned war. And just today it came out too that in the G8 meeting they're all on board with consensus to to attack, of course, uh, and, and get get it all over and done with. And of course, I'm sure they've got all divvied up who's to get what and how much is to get will go to Israel on the border there too, and and all the big companies that will bring it back to the Stone Age. Remember what Kissinger said. And Brzezinski said, he said, I would prefer that Iraq, for instance, ends up being uh, basically demolished and, have, and then we'll get different factions to fight each other forever, forever and ever. Therefore, there's no big powerful government anymore. It's an open door for all the big boys to walk into with the private armies and take what they want. It's very simple, folks. That's what real government's all about. So they're not in the business. I mean, do you really fall for all this stuff about they're really worried about women across the world and all that and how they're getting on? And Do you really fall for that? Look at the history. Read the history of government and how government came to be. Big money has always been behind it. Governments are there to cater to big money. In fact, the big money puts the governments in. And they don't give, give a damn about uh, altruistic feelings and so on. They don't give a darn about bringing democracy across the world. It's a great excuse, though. It's a double-think thing, isn't it, from the Ministry of Peace, which, which means war. 
we're going to bring democracy across these countries, whether they like it or not. And that's what the Bush regime said too. But you see, it's a continuation of the same policy. Forget this left-wing, right-wing stuff. The same guys who ran Bush are running Obama. And that's all you really need to know. Forget all the rest of the, the excess masses of data, data, data. Because I've been doing it for years now. What was it, 1991 we started the Gulf War One. we're still at it today. Do you realize how long this war has been going on? Who benefits? Apart from the oil companies and all this, what country in the area benefits out of it all? What country had all these countries listed down as enemies to be eradicated? Oh, goodness sakes. Well, that's reality. I'll put this up tonight, this link, for those who want to go through it. And you can have a, a, a chuckle or a cry, whatever you want to do. And that's the music coming in, so we're back after these messages. Hi folks, this is Cutting Through the Matrix, and the U.S. is awfully generous. Are awfully generous, mind you, with your money, mind you. But it says the U.S. will buy Russian helicopters. Why aren't they buying their own Russian helicopters? Russian helicopters for the Afghan military, which, of course, is private armies are putting in there, too. So private companies are going to get Russian helicopters, which the U.S. are going to buy for them. And it says that one of the Russian-made MI-17 helicopters, it shows you, purchased by Alabama-based defense technology, as seen in Alan Huge. This is Russia uh, in this picture, taken January 3rd, 2011, it says. So it says, the Pentagon said Monday it will spend $572 million to buy 30 Russian-built military helicopters that will be used by Afghan security forces. The MI-17 helicopters will be used by Afghanistan's National Security Forces Special Mission Wing, which supports counter-terrorism, counter-narcotics, and special operations missions. The contract with Rosal Boron Export, the Russian arms company, covers spare parts, test equipment, and engineering support, and the Pentagon said the work would be performed in Russia. It's expected to be completed by the end of 2014. So there you go. So this big private company... Of course, we'll have a lot of big connections, I'm sure, and uh, and they're getting they're getting it paid for by the U.S. taxpayer again. <laughs> that just seems to be the normal thing to do, isn't it? Doesn't it see that? And then too, uh, the U.S. I mean, I, I was reading an Israeli paper where they actually joked in the Israeli paper. I don't know if it's a joke or not, but they actually said that uh, said that that the U.S. is run from Tel Aviv, you know. But it says U.S. House passes amendment to the NDAA regarding the national defense of Israel. Israel. And it says, uh, amendments to the DN, then DAA passed the U.S. House of Representatives Friday. The pricey amendment doesn't apply to the national defense of the United States, but that of Israel. It's a policy of the United States to take all necessary steps to ensure that Israel possesses and maintains an independent capability to remove existential threats to its security and defend its vital national interests. The amendment was introduced by Representative Peter Roscombe and passed overwhelmingly with a vote of 315 to 108. It'll go for a vote by the Senate next and then cross the desk of President Obama before it becomes a law that Israel can remove existential threats on the American taxpayers' dime. I wonder if they'll give them Russian choppers too. 
The bill would require the President to report every 90 days upon how the necessary steps are being implemented. It includes a mandatory identification of all aerial refueling platforms, bunker buster munitions and other capabilities and maintenance by Israel of robust independent capability to remove existential security threats, including nuclear and ballistic missile facilities in Iran, and defend its vital national interests. It's also important to note that while the city of Detroit defaulted on $2.5 billion of debt this week, the amendment promises to triple the request for missile defense cooperation funding for Israel from $96 million to $284 million. It must be the summer. I mean, the U.S. is getting awfully generous, isn't it? If they've got any sunny weather. I don't get it in Canada, mind you, because of all the geoengineering that goes on here. And last night, uh, the temperature went down to 40 Fahrenheit. And tonight it's to go down to freezing level. Not kidding, freezing. They're talking about frost and like freezing and frost. And this is June. But remind you, they're having global meetings as we speak about global warming. And... uh, and we're causing it, apparently. We're all causing it. So the answer is to tax you to death. You see? And everyone's swallowing this rubbish because they're brainwashed. And it's incessant. They can't give up the brainwashing. It's quite something. They've got to keep saying it in unison altogether, you see, and it overwhelms the average person's mind. They can't all be lying, surely. Well, yeah, of course. But yeah, they can actually all be lying, yeah. Because they're all you know, well paid to lie to you. Also, too... It says the EU and the US to launch talks for the world's biggest trade pact. Now remember too, the boys who set up this for this global system a hundred odd years ago talked about, uh, they were the big money, money lenders to the countries. They were big lenders, not just banks. And they set up their foundations as front organizations and then they set up groups like the Council on Foreign Relations in America, which is just the branch, the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, private organization of the biggest, richest folk on the planet, who also run all the medias across the world to standardize the news. If you want mind control, you must get all the news standardized. And they also have uh, members throughout your governments because they put them into government. The bureaucracies are primarily staffed by members of them, not just in the U.S. and Britain and Canada, New Zealand, Australia, but across the whole world now. So uh, here you are, the, the, big, the world's biggest trade pack. And they said 200 years ago they would bring in tr- free trade and then join uh, nations together and eliminate national countries like, like Europe. The EU and the United States are set to launch negotiations money to create the world's biggest free trade pact despite a hard line by France to protect its film and culture sectors from Hollywood. The EU and the US are set to launch the negotiations Monday, it says, and it says it's going to be the biggest free trade pact despite a hard line by France and so on. Such a trade deal is touted as a potentially huge boost to business, but they always say that or you'll be left behind. Well, we know how they're going to be left behind in, in Europe because at one time they had money in countries and now they've got masses of debt as they bail out the money and hand it all to the private new central bank that runs Europe, you see. And just on and on it goes, this black hole that they keep trying to fill up to stop countries from sinking. They borrow the money from the bankers to give to these other countries. And whether they actually receive it, who knows. But anyways, here we go again. It's going to be a great boost to business, economic growth and job creation. Just like Europe's, Europe's got the greatest, highest, highest unemployment they've ever had in their history. And because they're in the European Union, and they want to do the same thing now with the Americas joining us all to them, you see. But again, they wrote about this a hundred years ago, step by step, and they are following the plan. Back with more after this.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back cutting through the matrix. As I said, too, at the beginning of this broadcast, that this free trade deal was worked out a 100 years ago to end national sovereignty, to blend countries into regions, like a conglomerate, like Europe is now, of course, with a commission on top running it all. And each commission would be eventually subject to a global parliament. That was the whole point of it. It's still coming, by the way, that it's the same agenda by the same organizations. And you find that um, it's all going to plan. And, of course, uh, they conned everybody to join the European Union, and even the countries that kept saying no. And they said, oh, you'll have so many jobs and so much work and all the rest of it. And the liars, of course, had it all planned that all your work was going to go off to China anyway, offered all the factories and so on. They knew all that. In fact, this same group, of course, created the WTO and the the Bank for International Settlements uh, and a whole bunch of the IMF. They created that too. And the United Nations, by the way. They own it all. So here they are again. And... um, and it says here the, the head of the EU executive, Jose Manuel Barroso, who also is at the summit along with the EU president, Herman von Rompuy, this little strange little creepy guy, weighed in with an unusually exposed criticism of France for its reactionary behavior to defend its audiovisual and cultural industry. So some say they belong to the left, but in fact they're, they're culturally extremely re- reactionary, he says. The president of the European Commission said in an interview with the International Herald Tribune Monday. If the EU-US deal, and Canada's in with it too, with the Canada deal, because it's all, they all work together. Uh, the CFR branch in Canada is working with the US CFR branch along with the Royal Institute of International Affairs branch of, of Britain. And the CFR branch too, uh, for the European politicians, run by George Soros. That's who runs all the politicians there under the same organization. This would be the world's largest free trade deal. Bilateral trade in goods last year was worth some 500 billion euros, with another 280 billion euros in services and trillions in investment flows. Well, if it's that good last year, leave it the way it is. Don't change it, because then we're in massive debt. But the whole thing is to standardize your laws and so on together, and you'll also be bailing out Europe, folks. You see, it's getting you into the same scam to bail out them once you join this trade deal. It's all economics are involved in the trade deal, all economics and laws. The EU says an FTA would add about 119 billion euros annually to the EU economy and 95 billion euros for the US. That's probably debt. But British Prime Minister David Cameron, who is hosting the G8 meeting of leading industrial nations, made no mention of the row with France as he hailed the deal. And of course, it's all PR stuff. I mean, you hate even reading their stuff, isn't it? You really hate it. Because the scriptwriters give you the same old standard things you've seen down through history. Getting agreements, signing deals, making progress on issues that will help hard-working families. Right here in the UK, he says. For me, that's what the agenda of this G8 is all about, Cameron said. What a liar. He doesn't even blush when he says it. And it says, um, the British Prime Minister's spokesman said he expected to take it 12 to 18 months for the EU and US to complete negotiations, dismissing speculation that it could take years for anyone to see the benefits. Well, the big boys that get all the cash grants will see the benefits right away. He added, I think what you're going to see today is really good, important news with the launch of the EU-US trade negotiations. And, and, and that's about it. You can't say any more about this awful rubbish because this is just public relations propaganda and stuff like that. We're all getting joined together. A plan, to say, that was set out a hundred years ago. 
uh, from the Royal Institute of International Affairs, a private organization of uh, Britain's elite with the CFR, with taking in the US elite and Canada and Australia, New Zealand. They've got India in it now too and a few other countries. They've even got Germans in it now. So they're running pretty well the whole country and putting their own guys into bureaucracies in those countries, have done for a long time. And also electing, actually, they actually admit that they, they put in the prime ministers and presidents. That's what Carl Quigley, the personal historian, said himself. And this article here too, it says, um, the group of eight summit, uh, the one pillar of today's GX world. It's quite interesting this because it's from the CFR, Council of Foreign Relations, the big boys themselves, you see, called the internationalists because that's their job to bring you all, they make you all international. So the Group of Eight Summit, one pillar of today's GSX world, and it says it's become conventional to assess, assert, following Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer, we live in a G0 world. The international system lacks global leadership. Rather than concentrating efforts in common endeavours, we're told every nation is out for itself. And in fact, the G0 label is misleading, a barren caricature of rich landscape of international cooperation that actually does not exist or actually does exist, he says. What is distinctive about our era is not the absence of multilateralism, but, but its astonishing diversity and flexibility. When it comes to collective action, states are no longer focusing solely on, or even primarily on, or universal treaty-based institutions like the UN, or even on a single apex forum like the Group of Twenty. Instead, governments have adopted an ad hoc approach, coalescing into a bewildering array of issue-specific and sometimes transient bodies, depending on their situational interests, shared values, relevant capacity capabilities. So it's a welcome to the GX world. An important pillar of the GX world is the venerable Group of Eight, composed of the United States, Japan, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Canada, and Russia, plus the European Union. The G8's resilience is something of a surprise, even since President George Bush elevated the G20 to the leaders' level in November 2008. Pundits have predicted the G8's demise. Such obituaries remain premature. The G8 remains unique. Uh, and advantages as a, uh, to a, a multilateral forum for political and macroeconomic coordination amongst advanced market democracies. So it's there for the market, you see, international markets and so on. And it's also a private organization for those who don't know it, because they see the CFR owns it. They run it. Your prime ministers and presidents are all members of it. And they didn't ask you if they could join it and take you all into it. And they never will ask you that either. You, you run privately, folks. And it says one of the G8's obvious advantage over the G20 is its modest size, which enables it the unscripted, candid dialogue that world leaders crave. The first summit of the kind, a G5 meeting in the Chateau de Rambouillet in 75, remains the model for this sort of interaction. After intimate discussions over world economy, the leaders produce a concise declaration of only 15 paragraphs. David Cameron, this year's host, is anxious to go back to those first principles. There'll be no lengthy communique, no armies of officials telling each other what each of their leaders think. They're all with consensus now. They've got down to consensus. And they use Chatham House rules, which means that's the Royal Ship of International Affairs headquarters. They came up with the Chatham House rules for these boys that you think that you elect into governments. Meaning they can't tell the public what they're really talking about. And, it's, and by the way, they're also talking about the war right now. And they're all putting their support behind war completely on, uh, on going into Syria. And a few other countries as well. The bad science scandal, how fact fabrication is damaging the UK's global name for research. 
After a string of high-profile cases, a new agreement between scientists and the people who fund them aims to usher in a new era of research purity. That'll be the day, eh? Research purity. Britain's leading science institutions will be told Monday that they'll be stripped of many millions of pounds in research grants if they employ rogue researchers who fake the results of experiments. This is the clampdown came as retractions of scientific claims by medical journals are on course to top 500 for the first time in 2013, having just uh, been just 20 a year in the late 1990s when Andrew Wakefield ventorously claimed the MMR vaccine caused autism in children. Actually, it does. In April, the UK's first researcher was jailed for falsifying data over a prolonged period. Uh, Japan's doing it too, of course. The government is concerned that Britain's prized second place in global research behind the US will be threatened if more fact fabricators are exposed. It knows that hundreds of thousands of jobs could easily go to foreign rivals if British, British laboratories do not coming up, keep coming up with new product ideas to be made by major multinational companies in UK factories. Often the factories are foreign-owned, by the way. <laughs> Off the country's 133 universities and colleges of higher education are being forced to sign a new concordat for research integrity, having been warned by major fund providers that those who do not will be refused access to more than $10 billion or pounds in research grants funded each year by British taxpayers and as much again from the private sector. See, the big private sectors use your universities for to come up with ideas, and it saves them having to do it, uh, and it saves them a lot of money. But the deal is that they get the patents on everything. And then the companies own it, you see. So I'll put this bit of rubbish on up tonight as well. Because, as I say, uh, the whole system is corrupt. So I wish they put all the guys that are uh, in, in the Met office and all the rest of them that are given this global warming uh, fanaticism and climate change fanaticism so that they can tax you into poverty. It's called austerity. That's how they're going to bring you there. Uh, I wish they'd put them all out of the business as well. And getting back to the European Union, Mr. Rompuy, as I, I'm not sure if they call him Rompuy or Rompuy or whatever, you know, it's a strange little guy that says very little. He wasn't elected, by the way, by the public. There was a strange secret commission that, that put him in there for the whole of Europe. Isn't that amazing? This is called democracy, you see. The euro has been saved and is no longer under existential threat from the financial crisis. See, it's just over. It's one day you wake up, just, just got black holes filled in, eh? Just filled itself in. Maybe it moved off into a different universe and, well, took the money with it. So it says, uh, at a press conference in Lockett Vern, ahead of the formal opening of the G8 summit, Van Rompuy said the European Union was now able to assure G8 nations that its economic situation was much improved since last summer. Rompuy indicated that success in reducing fiscal deficits gave EU nations greater flexibility to slow the pace of fiscal consolidation and inject demand into their domestic economies to drive growth and jobs. It's just bureaucraties. You see, he's been, he's been a bureaucrat his whole life. This bureaucraties he speaks, you see. So the euro is no longer under, under threat and the financial stability, just like that. See, some, it's true enough. If you just have enough sleep, things, you wake up one morning and things have fixed themselves just, just like that, you see. Never mind all the countries are now bankrupt and have got billions and billions to pay from to the big bankers who, who they borrowed money from to throw at Greece and Italy and other countries. So the economies will become stronger out of the crisis in the Eurozone and more integrated. Well, they'll be more integrated, but they won't be more strong, stronger because the, the Europe's now got the highest crisis they've ever had in unemployment in their history. But facts don't count, eh? The good news, there's always an optimism there with the people. I'll, I'll take the good news. I won't listen to the bad news. And it says the United Nations. Now, the United Nations 
was set up from the League of Nations, the precursor of it, again by the Lord Alfred Milner Group that became the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Private organization with their big global agendas. They wanted wars, by the way, and uh, they said they'd have to bring the countries to their knees and get them in massive debt, and then they'd unite them under these training blocks, you see. So they're all for it, and they're based in London, of course. And it says, uh, the United Nations prepares to go to war for the first time. If you look at the old PATH newsreels from World War II, you'll see them, it's all propaganda stuff, you'll see the landing craft going in and you'll hear the voiceover saying, uh, and uh, there you go, the boys, uh, United Nations, in to fight the Germans and all that kind of stuff. So it's not the first time at all. They tried to play down that image for a while after World War II to say they're really a peace organization. So they're going in with a 3,000-strong task force set to fight rebels in the Congo. Now, they had to get into, into Africa because uh, Africa was set up a long time ago, and the Africans couldn't fill it with troops. So the West recently, every article here in the air, the West recently sent uh, U.S. troops in and drones and everything else because now it's time to plunder what's left of Africa, you see. And the Congo is, is always had wars going on from Western institutions backing them because they're so rich on things that they want, like uranium and things like that, very rich, high-quality stuff. And so that's why they're going to grab out some big corporation will end up getting this from the United Nations once it's all over. So it says... Um, it's the first time that the UN will be in direct control of a fighting force, this peace organization, but war is peace, remember in freedom and slavery. Even normally reluctant Russia and China voted in favor of the action because they're going to get some out of it too. And mineral-rich Congo has been wracked by years of civil war, and it was originally sparked by the genocide in neighboring Rwanda. No, it was going on long before Rwanda was going on. And uh, it says the UN has led, led a 14-year-long peacekeeping uh, in a bid to end the ethnic conflict sparked by the genocide in neighboring Rwanda when thousands of Hutus fled to the Congo to evade justice. And it says much of the fighting is now the country's natural resources, which include large quantities of gold, copper, diamonds, and coltan, a mineral used in cell phones as well. That's pretty rare stuff, which they really, really want. But they'll mention, of course, the, the uranium. According to the organization World Without Genocide, the violence has killed as many as 5.4 million people, making it the world's bloodiest conflict since World War II. And so on and so on and so on. But uh, as I said, they'll get plundered. It's time to go and save them and plunder them. And for the big boys can do all the stuff. Just diamonds just sitting there doing nothing for goodness sake. And gold and stuff. The true cost of Britain's wind farm industry is revealed. Every job in Britain's wind farm industry is effectively subsidized. Every job. Now, remember, it's going to be jobs, jobs, jobs. You see? And cheap electricity is a jacket up 20-fold. And it says... Every job, every job, listen, for those who are hard, hard of thinking, listen very carefully. Every job in Britain's wind farm industry is effectively subsidized to, to the extent of £100,000 per year. This is a subsidy for every job. And it says, a new analysis of government and industry affairs shows the wind turbine owners receive £1.2 billion in the form of a consumer subsidy paid by a by a supplement on electricity bills last year. You all pay it. They employed 12,000 people to produce an effective £100,000 subsidy on each job. Disclosure is potentially embarrassing for the wind industry because it claims it's an economically dynamic sector that creates jobs. It was described by critics as proof the sector was not economically viable, with one calling it evidence of soft jobs that depended on the taxpayer. 
and the subsidy was disclosed in a new analysis of official figures which showed that the level of support from subsidies in some cases is so high that jobs are effectively supported to the extent of £1.3 million each <laughs> for each job, eh? <laughs> in Scotland, which has 203 onshore wind farms, more than anywhere else in the UK, that's because it cleared all the people out the country, just 2,235 people are directly employed to work on them, despite an annual subsidy of £344 million subsidy. Yeah. That works out to £154,000 per job. And it says, even if the maximum number of jobs that have been forecast are created by 2020, the effective subsidy on them would be £80,000 a year. One source who owns several wind farms and who did not wish to be named said, anybody trying to justify subsidies on the basis of jobs it's creating is talking nonsense. Wind farms are not labour intensive. They're not even very intensive at producing electricity, by the way. There's been mounting controversy about the value of both onshore and offshore wind farms with discontent amongst backbench Conservative MPs. The industry's trade body Renewable UK has campaigned to promote the method of electricity generation as a way to create jobs. It states on this website that we aim to create thousands of jobs across a wide range of business sectors. It says the industry currently employs 12,000 people and is set to employ up to 90,000 people by 2020. I think they'll have to get them in that eventually, you know, because if you look at the pictures, I'll put some up tonight too. Uh, you see all the dead seagulls at, at the bottom of them and smashed songbirds with their heads cut off and everything because they get ripped, shredded to pieces with these. So they need lots of people to pick up the mess. Maybe they'll recycle it or something for who knows what. Maybe they'll put it in your food. It's maybe better than the burgers you're eating. It's not meat at all. The promise of future jobs is dependent on the building of large-scale wind farms at sea and the construction of factories in Britain to manufacture the turbines, which are currently almost all built abroad. And they don't last long, you know. And in high winds, they shatter. You don't want one of those props going over your head or through your house when they have a high wind. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix and we'll go to Chris from North Carolina if he's still on the line. There, Chris. Uh, yes sir, Mr. Watt, how are you doing? Not bad at all. Uh, I'm, this is going to kind of come a little bit out of left field and, I, and I, you know, I hate to get off topic, but I've, I've called you before about a, reli- a religious subject and I've, I've read some of the books that you recommended me to read before and uh, one thing that has really kind of caught my interest is I read in a book, I uh, can't remember the book right off the top of my head, but it said that the, the Knights Templars, when they first went to Jerusalem, they uh, they set up on the side of the old temple, and they're supposed to have found some relics that would have kind of did, uh, proved that the church had taken the story of Jesus and, and modified it somewhat. Uh, is there any truth to that? Do you know, or, or I don't know anybody else to, to ask about well, that. Well, that, that really came out with a, a book that was called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And it was written by some journalists in Britain who actually belonged to a different religious persuasion uh, with, with a, an intention of, of debunking Christianity because they're, they're enemies of it, actually. But uh, you, you, things that happened back then, uh, you, you could take it with a pinch of salt. We know they did go in. You know, there was a, a small uh, mosque they built, basically, a temple for themselves. And uh, But most of it's steeped in folklore. We really don't know what they found. 
but uh, it, again, it's, it's the old Holy Grail idea. They found something magical. They gave them special rights to be and exist and powers and so on. It's a typical standard tale that came out. Originally, too, in France, the whole, the whole like, along with the King Arthur thing about the same time. And they, they ran with it. So people love mysticism and all the rest of it. All you can really say about the Knights Templar is they did uh, get a charter to exist from the Vatican eventually. Uh, the Knights of St. John already were there, the Hospitallers, and the, the Templars were given, or took themselves gradually the right to tax uh, people and lend money out for the first time. They became the first real big, big bankers outside, but at that time was, was the Spanish Judaic communities that run a good part of the world at that time. So, so the first uh, outsiders to start uh, money lending and they were allowed to keep the cash. It got so bad, though, uh, that uh, when, when widows were losing their, they lost their husbands in the holy wars, uh, the widows were being convinced by the representatives, you know, good talking salesmen in the Knights Templars, to leave whole dowries and castles and everything to them. So they were taking over vast estates all over Europe. And that's why Philips of France, of course, got the winds up when he saw the power that they were collecting to themselves. And they were not following Christianity at all, by the way. And they really were a precursor of what we call Freemasonry. They they uh, they were allowing anybody from any faith or whatever into the organisation, uh, into the Brotherhood as they called it, and that that all came out during the trials. So they were disbanded and or were arrested. But in some countries, they were allowed to stay free, like England didn't arrest them. Uh, other ones fled to Scotland and they settled in Argyllshire. And in Argyllshire, you'll still see the old Templar gravestones there with their markings on it and the sword and so on. So um, they certainly went down through the ages. A lot of them settled also in what became southern France, uh, in that region there. And they also give it a lot of mystic stories from that region as well. They became Cathars and Bogomils. Uh, in fact, I think they started them up to, to fight Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. I, I sure do appreciate it. And thanks for calling. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, as good night. I mean, your God or your God's school with you.